Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. So, uh, this morning, the Lord woke woketh me uh, to uh, use the restroom at 6 a.m., rolled over and saw a text message from Jameis that said, hey man, can you preach this morning? And so, uh, luckily, I've been through the book of Judges before, and so we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 3 here in a second, um, and so I'm excited. So y'all just bear with me. If something doesn't make sense, just chalk it up to 6 a.m. preparation. Um, so Judges chapter 3, uh, I grew up in a small town in Florida. Uh, it's a town called Crestview, Florida. Many of you have driven through it or passed it at some point, seen a sign for it as you are headed to Destin, Florida, to your true destination. Nobody drives eight hours south to go to Crestview, Florida. Uh, if you do, great, good on you. Um, but uh, I'm from this smaller town in Florida, and it was kind of um, uh, the redneck version of Florida. I've told people before that Crestview is kind of like if you squeezed Alabama and the worst parts of the culture spilled over into Florida. That's where I'm from. Um, and so I grew up in the woods. I would just, like, that was fun. Like, we just, you know, there was a big patch of woods right next to our house. And so I would just go over to the woods and just have an adventure. That was kind of my childhood a lot of times. And so me and a friend of mine, we decided to go build a fort out in the woods. And as many of you have had this experience yourself, there's just so much promise, right? You think this fort is going to be incredible. It's going to stand forever. And as we were doing this, we kind of got bored with the fort. So I had a hatchet that we were using, and I just started chopping on this tree. And just because we were just talking, and I was just chopping on this tree. Well, pretty soon, I started to make a pretty good dent in this tree. And so my buddy was like, hey, take a break. I'll, I'll, take some, I'll do it now. And so he started chopping on this tree, okay? So fast forward eight hours later, and we are still chopping on this tree with a hatchet, mind you. Now, this was one of those hatchets. Many of you had one that what the handle was basically electrical tape. So it's just nasty, it's, it's gummy, all this stuff. And so we've been hammering on this thing, we're sweating, our arms are starting to burn and hurt. And so finally we get to the end of this tree where we chopped almost all the way through it. And I went inside and basically was so proud of myself. Now keep in mind, where we were doing this was not our property. Uh, and so my parents didn't care too much because they thought, well, they're just breaking sticks and building a little fort over there. We can break it down later. And so I go in to get my mom and my mom comes out and she's, and I'm like, mom, watch this. We're going to take this tree down. And she's like, okay, (laughs) silly boys, whatever. So she's standing there she can't see us, but she can see the trees. Now my mom, her eyeline is like, is like this. So she's standing on the edge of the woods and she's like, oh, they're going to chop down a tree. So sweet. Uh, An accomplishment. And all of a sudden, she hears us go, timber! 
fire like that. And she looks up, and it is a four-story pine tree. We had been chopping on it for eight hours, like this big around, and we had been chopping on this thing with a hatchet. And so this thing fell, and it took down like 17 other trees with it. And my mom was furious. And we were, rightfully so, we were like, I, I turned white as a ghost because what, what at first was, look how proud I am of what we've accomplished today, turned into, oh my goodness, I could be arrested. So, um, so th- this all came down to it. Like if you, if you were asking me as a kid, like, would you chop through a tree this size with a hatchet. I would have said no. I said it's almost an impossible endeavor. We would not do that. We would not sink eight hours into this endeavor. Why? Because it looks impossible. Okay, so this was a silly example, but there's a lot of truth in this that this is how many of us in this room today are viewing our temptations and sins. That it's this giant tree in our way and we have tried with a hatchet for years to bring down this sin that is holding us and keeping us captive. Many of us who are even not in Christ or in Christ, we all struggle with temptation, and many of us have a sin in our life that is planted firmly in our hearts, and it is like a giant tree trunk, and we can't seem to make any headway on fighting this sin. Well, hopefully today, we're gonna walk away with a sense of where our victory over sin comes from. And hopefully for some of us in this room, we're gonna experience extra freedom from God's word, extra freedom from this sin that is found in the word of God. And maybe today, some of us will walk away repenting, turning from our sin and turning to Christ for salvation for the first time. So main point today, there is no enemy, and in parentheses, we have and no idol that prevails against Jesus the warrior. There is no enemy and no idol that prevails against Jesus the warrior. Now, I wanna set the, the stage here for the book of Judges because if many of us have not read the book of Judges, it can be a little bit jarring when you dive into the text because there's a lot of details, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot going on. But here we come to the history of Israel where they have been fighting with the Canaanites for a while. So the Israelites have been in this battle. They have been following what God has asked them to do, and they have been led to what they is supposed to be the promised land. God told them, I'm going to take you out of slavery from Egypt. That was a long time ago. And, and you're, they wandered. They, they did some things right. They did some things wrong. And God led them to Canaan, the, the land of Canaan, which was supposed to be the promised land for them. Now, in the book of Joshua that comes right before this, it actually closes with them the people of Israel being at peace with God. It closes in a good way, in a positive way. Now, what we know about the people of Israel, though, is when things are going well, because they are a forgetful people, they are a sinful people, they turn from God, they go back to their disobedient ways, and in this book of Judges, we see them spiral into disobedience. They spiral into what we're gonna see in a second, doing what was right in their own eyes. And what starts out in this book, it seems like everything's okay. Joshua ends, Judges begins, everything seems okay. And then they spiral into sin. And then we see a, it's a, the book is in a cyclical nature. So the book of Judges follows a kind of a pattern that you'll see over and over again throughout the book. And it is basically this. They fall into sin, God disciplines them, 
And then God, they cry out to God because they're feeling the pain of what they have done. And then they, when they cry out to God, God is faithful to bring about a judge. That's what the book is called, Judges. They bring about a judge and to come and rescue them from the enemy of God. Now, a judge is not a king, so we want to clarify that. A judge is not a king, but rather someone, a military figure or a fighter of some kind to go and enact the judgment of God on the enemies of Israel. So the book of Judges, if you were gonna sum it up, we would say the book of Judges is all about the holiness and the righteousness of God and his judgment being poured out on the enemies of God's people. That's to sum up, that's kind of the, the big theme overarching all of the book of Judges. But what we see here is they, they fight these people, the Canaanites. Now the Canaanites, oftentimes this book is used to argue that Christianity is not a loving religion. Often this book is, is used to say that, that this doesn't hold up under the New Testament Jesus who, who was led to slaughter to the cross and, and did not fight back, did not bring legions of angels to rescue him. It doesn't sink up. But the truth is the Canaanites were actually an extremely evil people. Their sin was very much a dark sin. In fact, part of their worship to many of their pagan gods was to sacrifice children to these idols. So they, they engaged in lots and lots of evil, terrible things. So here's the reality. God in the Old Testament, he uses the people of Israel to enact his judgment upon those that sin against the children or sin against God. And so this is exactly what's going on in this book is we're gonna see God's judgment, his justice riddled throughout the pages. And so let's jump into the first judge that we're gonna look at uh, is Judges chapter three, and it's a guy named Ehud. So if you're curious how to pronounce that, point number one, we have two main enemies, Satan and ourselves. We have two main enemies, Satan and ourselves. Now, verse 12 is where we're gonna begin in chapter three. And it says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now the people of Israel are back to their old ways. Now notice the language here is very important. It says that they were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the other passages within Judges says they did what was right in their own eyes. So we see this imagery of them doing what they wanted to in their flesh. Now specifically, and more specifically, they were turning to the worship of idols. So there was the Baals and the Asheroths, and we won't get into detail about what those are, but those were idols that were worshiped by the pagan nations. And the idea was that if you did what was right in the eyes of these idols, then you would receive blessing from them. And so that's exactly what Israel was doing. They turned from God and obeying him, and they turned to the idols. Now, this is really fascinating where it says the city of Palms because it's referring to the city of Jericho. And the city of Jericho is actually the site of one of Israel's greatest victories. And, and they, had, they had won a battle to win Jericho at one point. And what they are forgetting and what's so ironic about this detail is that they're, they're literally turning from God and they're forgetting the victories, the faithfulness of God that he had towards them. And they're turning to worship idols 
instead. And so in this in this chapter here, we're seeing just pure disobedience. But, but what's important is to see this language of doing what was right in their own eyes. And this is the first enemy. It's us. Our first enemy is us. Purely and simply, we are our enemy. It's just like the old phrase. We are our worst enemy. We do what is right in our own eyes. And often, uh, so, so there's an author, he uses this language that's super important. He says that our hearts and our souls are idol factories. We create idols in our life that we worship. Now, the idols that we're talking about here in the Old Testament obviously are stone and wood idols. The Baals and the Asherahs are these, these stone and wood idols that they would, sometimes made out of metal, they would set them up and they would worship these idols. Well, today, we don't have idols that look like that per se. So like if you currently have a stone statue that you are bowing down to in your living room, please see one of the pastors after the service. Um, but what we do have is we have the, our own idols that we create in our lives that we place over and above God and we worship those things over and above God. And so we can list out a ton of these things, whether that's success or money or your family or safety or comfort or your phone. There are so many idols that become the thing that we sacrifice for, we give of ourselves for. We, we, we actually pay lots of money to have these things in our life. And they actually dictate the decisions that you make on a week-to-week basis. And so hopefully today we're gonna do some of this inventory to determine What are the idols that are holding on to you? What are these idols that we've put up in our lives that are holding on to you? Now, second enemy is Satan. We see in scripture here that King Eglon is the the earthly enemy that is facing Israel at this point. Now, Eglon, if you look through the Old Testament, you see an enemy of Israel. You can draw a line to Satan, typically, So a typical reading of the scriptures, a good hermeneutic for reading the scriptures is when you see an enemy of Israel in the Old Testament, you can put characteristics in that enemy and you can assign those characteristics to Satan. And so in much the same way, we see King Eglon. Now here's what's interesting about his name. In Hebrew, it means rotund. So Eglon was a fat guy. He was a big guy. And, we're, and this is emphasized in the scriptures, and you're gonna see more and more detail about this in just a second. But King Eglon is supposed to represent worldliness in the sense that he indulged himself in worldly behavior, specifically food. So he is supposed to be the picture of success, money. He's supposed to be prosperous because he can have food, tables full of food, and he can eat as much as he wants every single day. In other words, he is the picture of gluttony. He's the picture of sin. All the things that people longed for, he had it. He had money, success, food. He had plenty. And so he was the enemy against Israel, but he was also the picture of worldliness. And so this is the image of Satan. This is what Satan wants for you. He wants you to have some of the things. He wants you to long for some of the things that King Eglon had. And so here's a, this is a strategy of Satan. This is super important. While we do not have earthly idols, so statues that are made of stone or metal, while we do not have those things, today, Satan's strategy is actually for you to not see your idols. 
Satan does not want you to see clearly what is the thing that is stealing your affection from God. Satan does not want you to have a a, a physical image of another God because you would reject that. None of you in this room sat up and said, oh my goodness, John knows that I have a statue in my living room that I bow down to. None of you thought that. That's because that's not how Satan tempts us here in America. He doesn't tempt us with stone and, and, and money or, uh, and, and metal gods. He tempts us with secret idols within our souls. He doesn't want you to see that your financial success could be leading you to hell. Satan doesn't want you to see that money rules your life and you do everything you can to have more and more and more of it. Satan doesn't want you to see that your your lust is sin that will keep you separated from God for all eternity. Satan has a strategy because what he wants, what King Eglon wants in this story is the destruction of God's people. We must be aware. We must be aware of the strategies of the enemy of God's people. And King Eglon is a picture of that. Now, I know Jameis has used this analogy before, but I can't think of a better analogy than this, that, you know, there were studies that came out that showed that, you know, whenever, they were lead, whenever you lead a cow to slaughter, that, that if the cow knows it's coming or is stressed leading up to his death, the, the meat that you get from the cow is actually not very great. It's okay, it's fine, it's edible, but it's not great. So what they learned is actually we need the cows to like unclench, right? <laughs> Sorry, that's not a good example, but uh, we need the cows to relax. We need them to chill out. So what they did is they created this tunnel where they weave them in and out to get to the slaughterhouse, and down the tunnel, it's like pleasing colors. It's like landscapes, like beautiful pictures that have been painted on the walls so that the cows are thinking, man, this is great. This is wonderful. What a beautiful scene. And so they were never stressed. They just thought, man, I don't know where we're going, but it looks great. And so at the end, they die. They get butchered at the very end, and, and, it, and it happens in a flash. They didn't even see it coming. Well, that, that is legitimately what our idols are. They are comforts of this life to make us feel a little bit safe, a little bit secure, until the end is our destruction. Satan does not want you to see your sin and your idols for what they are. So today, let's do some inventory. As we, as we dive into the story, as we dive into the details, let's acknowledge the problem. Let's acknowledge that for some of us, we need to do a deep dive into what is the thing that I give the most energy to? What is the thing that I worship over and above God? What is the thing that I need to write down on my notes right now? I need to just call it out. I need to write it down. Now we're gonna see what to do with those idols in just a second, but point number two, God sends the right hero to destroy Satan, sin, and death. God sends the right hero to destroy Satan, sin, and death. So Judges chapter three, it says, uh, verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Remember, they're in slavery for 18 years under King Eglon. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now, 
The details of the story are incredible, but Ehud, basically being a left-handed man, we learn that, he made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. Now, this is more like an in-between knife and sword. So whatever this thing is, it's more of a dagger. It's more of a, a short sword that he has, and he, has, he is a left-handed man. Now, this, was, this blade was perfect for hiding, and we're, we're going to see why being left-handed is, is super important uh, because being left-handed back, back then is actually very, very unique. It's very unique because most cultures said you're only right-handed. So they would force people to be right-handed. They wouldn't allow someone to really identify as like a left-handed person. And so he he's a little short dagger. He has it, he's gonna have it strapped onto his, uh, onto his right thigh, okay? And the fact that he's left-handed is super important because the guards, when they were letting Ehud come see King Eglon, they would always do a security check. They would like search him. Like, where, is, there any, is there any poison? Is he hiding anything? But what they did not realize is they did not search his, left thigh, his right thigh. Because most people who are right-handed would reach over to their left thigh and would pull the dagger out like that. But instead, he hid it on his right thigh. They didn't even think to check there because they didn't know he was left-handed. Now, Ehud comes in and basically brings a tribute. So they've hatched a plan. They're trying to get Ehud in the room with Eglon he brings a tribute to Eglon, probably food. We don't know for sure. And Eglon basically lets his guard down. Now, what Ehud does, though, that's really cool is he leans in and he says, I have a secret from God for you. And so Eglon, being a very prideful person, being intrigued by this, he stands up. He sends the guards out because he's thinking this is only a secret between gods because Ehud thinks of himself in that way. He's so prideful, he's so puffed up in his prosperity and his power that he does not realize what's happening. He sends them out because this is a secret message that only he deserves to hear because he is puffed up. And so Ehud does something crazy. He pulls the dagger out as he leans in to whisper the secret to King Eglon. He stabs him. Now, these details are super important. He stabs him. You can go read them yourselves. I'm just summarizing. But he stabs him. The dagger goes in it goes in so deep that his fat rolls literally close around the dagger, okay? I, we're gonna get to why this is important. So they go in, the dagger goes into his fat rolls and his fat rolls close around it, okay? Y'all don't know it's gonna be PG-13 this morning. Um, and then what happens next is an important detail. Now again, read the story for yourself. I'm not making this up. This isn't youth pastor John coming up here to tell some ridiculous story, okay? So he then defecates on himself. Okay, poop. He poops on himself. If you don't know what defecate means, some of you are Googling, you're like, defecate? Uh, so he poops on himself. Now, why is this such an important detail? Well, it's an important detail because the guards outside, they smell this. And so they're, they're sitting out there and they're like, you know, you can imagine a couple of guards, they're smoking cigs and they're like, hey man, like, yeah, it sounds, it kind of smells like Eglon's relieving himself right now. And it says that. He went up to the cool chamber this upper chamber, that's where he would go to relieve himself. And so the guards are assuming that Eglon is relieving himself. They're not gonna go bother him. And so what happens is in this period of time where the guards don't know what's going on, Ehud gets away. So God has orchestrated all of these details so that Ehud could kill the enemy. Then all this weird stuff happens. He poops on himself. The guards think he's relieving himself. And then Ehud has enough time to get away. 
Now, first of all, I want to just point this out. The details of the story are so important. One, they are so important because God is sovereign. God is in control of all the details in this life. Is there, if there's one thing we walk away with is that our God is not a God who is far away. Our God is not a distant God who spun all of creation into existence and is now wringing his hands, fearful that this isn't gonna come out like he planned it to come out. Our God is a God in the details. See, Satan thinks he has a plan that's gonna end in a win, and that is not the case. God is going to be victorious in the end. Satan will have zero victory over God's people because our God is in control. See, God is in the details, and he's in the details, and he's working out his story for the destruction of Satan, our sin, our idols, And he's working in the details for the redemption of God's people. So take heart, believer and follower of Christ today, that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your salvation is secure. Unto all eternity, you are safe because God is working all things for the good of his people and his glory. Now, let's talk about how awesome this story is of just the unique hero that comes in to deliver Israel, and and this is exactly kind of what we see in the New Testament. It's a lot of what we see in the New Testament. God sends the exact right person, Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man, to come and rescue us from our sin. You see, the Israelites, up to this point, they have had to have visible images They've had to have visible images of a coming savior. They sacrificed animals because they needed an image of a coming savior. They needed Ehud and all the judges so they could see that God provides a hero, a savior throughout the Old Testament, ultimately to lead to our savior, Jesus Christ, who would be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so Jesus, and I I want to point to this real quick because it's so important in in the scriptures when we see the hero has a dagger, a sword, and he, he, he delivers justice to the enemy. I think sometimes we have a picture of Jesus that is too small. Like I think sometimes we have a, a picture of Jesus that he's this mild mannered carpenter. That all he did was a few little miracles and and yeah, he 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 quietly died on a cross. And that's an important message. That's a super important message that he humbly served us and died on the cross. But some of us today don't need to see Jesus as being mild-mannered, but as a sword-wielding warrior that fights for his people. That there's no enemy that stands before God's people that Jesus will not decimate in the end. You see where Eglon is, is laying under the ground, six feet under Jesus Christ, did not stay buried. He rose from the dead to save you, to destroy your idols, all those idols that think they're standing strong. He has broken the chains. He has given you freedom. And if you trust in Jesus today, you will have warrior Jesus on your side. And there is no enemy, there's no sin that you struggle with that will overcome you. Jesus will have victory in the end. He did not stay buried. And he took all of our guilt, all of our shame on the cross. He died for us. And then he rose again victorious. And he now reigns at the right hand of God. Let us celebrate that today and be joyous in that. Now, 
Point number three, this is where, this is actually, all the details of the story are so awesome and so incredible and so encouraging for us to see Jesus as the, the strong warrior on our side. But I love this picture because they, they go into more detail. It's my favorite part. So verse 19, so put your finger on verse 19 and then verse 26. My favorite two verses of this story. Jesus, the warrior crushes idols. Verse three, or point number three, I'm sorry. Jesus, the warrior crushes idols. Verse 19 and verse 26. But he himself, this is Ehud, turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Then verse 26, it says, Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah or Sierra. I'm not sure which one's correct there. But it says two things. It says he turned back at the idols. This was before he stabbed the king. And then it says in verse 26 that he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. Now, these little details are really important. And I love this image that we have of right before he stabs Eglon, he stares the idols directly into their face. And then right before he escapes, it says he just passed right beyond the idols. Why would the scriptures tell us this? Why would they put this detail in this? And it, and, and it sounds silly. I don't know if you guys know this. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been in student ministry now for uh, about 12 years, uh, 11 years. And uh, I've learned a lot of lingo, okay? So, you know, like in, in student ministry world, there's a lot of lingo that, that comes across, you know, and some of it's possibly inappropriate, but I'm old and I don't understand. Um, some of you don't either. Uh, but but there's this, this new... Thing that we have been they've been saying for a long time now. I'm probably still behind on this, but they they say like, why why are you flexing on him like that? Okay, well that's exactly what's happening right here. Like Ehud is flexing on the idols in this moment. Okay, so he's he's saying he's looking the idols and he's saying you are absolutely nothing, and my God is everything. And he's he's basically staring them in the face and he's saying your idols mean nothing. Those idols ultimately matter nothing. They didn't have any power to stop me. They didn't keep me from killing Satan. And what this tells us today, and this should be encouraging for all believers, for all followers of Christ, that Jesus, Jesus will not be overcome by your idols. Your idols don't have to reign in your life. Jesus can reign in your life. Your sin does not have to determine what decisions you make every single day. Jesus can do that. And if you trust in Jesus, Jesus will slowly begin to destroy the idols of your life. And so like I said about the tree trunk, this giant monstrous tree trunk, for some of us, our idols are like a wall in front of us. Our temptations are like a wall in front of us. And we feel like, man, they're the monster in the room. I'm so discouraged. I've tried for years. I've prayed a thousand times and I just can't seem to, I just can't seem to overcome these things. And today, I think first and foremost, what we need to do is that wall needs to shrink to about two feet and Christ needs to be a thousand feet in your life. Jesus needs to be that warrior. You need to view him as that, that he is with you, he is for you if you have trusted in Jesus. Your idols have no reign over you. Galatians chapter five, verse one, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That's exactly what Jesus did when he, when he died on the cross and Satan does not rule in your life, Jesus does. So let's get really practical with this. There's some specific things that we can do 
to invite Jesus to crush idols in our lives. There are specific things we can do. The first is to acknowledge, is to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where is there some, there's an idol in my life that is reigning in my heart. Show me. Show me what it is. It's, it may be hidden. Maybe you don't even see it. Maybe you don't even know it. And, and here's, here's the thing, what we talked about before about Satan wanting you to be led to the slaughter and, and hiding things from you. Well, one of the things that is hidden from us at times is idols that are actually really good things. There, there are idols in our life that, are, that, that if you just look at them at, at the first look, they're, they're good things. They're, they're solid things in your life. But Satan and our sin twists them to become something else. So I'll give you an example. There might be some of you in here that like your family is not what you wanted it to look like. Like your, your family, your, your kids, your husband, your marriage is not what you thought it should look like. And it has wrecked you daily. It has caused you so much strain. It's caused you so much shame at rethinking all the decisions you made with your children or thinking back on, on vacations that, that were supposed to be wonderful and fun and they turned out to be absolute nightmares. And, and, and it actually brings you tons of just, like you don't feel like you have any hope. Or, or maybe every single day your mental, uh, your thoughts and your energy goes into trying to fix your family. Well, sometimes family can be the thing that is reigning in your life. That that image, that idol you set up for yourself is the, the, the family that looks like this. And so maybe today just acknowledge that. Acknowledge that that's there. Maybe for some of you in this room, it's safety and comfort. It's like, I, I live a very safe and comfortable life, and therefore, I'm going to maintain that safety and that comfort. I've confessed this with you guys before, but I know an idol in my life is my house. I mean, it's not much to look at, but, but it's, it's a safe place for me. It's, it's kind of my, 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 my domain. And oftentimes, I only think of my house of what it will do for me and my relaxation and, and my, my kind of escape from everything. And I don't think about what, I don't rethink that and say, no, 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 what, God, what are you calling me to do with my home? And so I need to be more thinking, okay, is my safe space reigning in my life? Am I making decisions so that I can maintain what I have in my house? Or am I opening it up to risk? Opening it up to families, opening it up to neighborhood kids, which we, we do now. <laughs> I'm thankful God has convicted me of that and grown us in that. Maybe for some of you today, it's money and success and, and that money's not bad in and of itself, but when twisted, it can become the thing that rules and reigns in your life. Now we're gonna close this service with uh, our ministry team. So this is the, the, next, the next step. And the ministry team is gonna be you know, at the doors, gonna be down front. I'll be standing down front down here. And so the next thing is once you have prayed, and we're gonna take a minute to do that. Once you've prayed and God has shown you this is the thing that reigns in your life, the next step is what it says in the book of James. It says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other. That is a command of scripture. That's not a suggestion. 
But if you look at the gospel, if you look throughout the, the Old Testament and New Testament, the good news of the gospel is, is compared and contrasted with worldliness and lies that we believe. Lies are in darkness, and the gospel is truth and light. And that means that light needs to be shed on your sin. Whether that is an addiction, whether that is uh, maybe just battles with bitterness and anger, maybe it is one of these idols that's being revealed to you. Confess your sins to someone. We cannot defeat idols on our own. We cannot face idols alone. We need community. You need brothers and sisters who know your deepest struggles. I will tell you, one of my favorite things that we do um, here at Pleasant Valley is, is all of your pastors. When we have an elders meeting, uh, a pastors meeting, one of the things we do is soul care. And we sit down and we get in groups of two or three and we literally confess our sin. We confess our struggles. And then what we do is we hold each other accountable. We pray for each other. We care for each other. We have community groups here at Pleasant Valley Community Church. We literally have community in the name of our church. So, so community groups are an opportunity to confess sin and be held accountable. If you're not in one, we have awesome links on our website. You can find a community group and get plugged in. We must confess our sins and hold each other accountable. And, and the thing that you need to be reminded of, because here's the lie that is said to you on a daily basis, that you have to stay in shackles to your sin. That's the lie that we hear on a daily basis. You have to stay in shackles to your sin. And we need another brother or sister in Christ to say, no, Jesus is your savior. He's your warrior. He has freed you from your sin. You don't have to answer to Satan anymore. So let's bow our heads and let's take a second as the band comes. Bow our heads, close our eyes. Let's take a moment for the Holy Spirit to convict. Ask God, show me, God. Show me where I am tempted. Show me where an idol reigns. And like I said, if you wanna talk with somebody, they're a safe place. We have ministry team members down front at the, at the exit doors. I'll be down front if you wanna share that so that someone can pray for you and help guide you through that. So let's take a minute of just silence, praying, and let the Spirit help you discern these idols. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.